two wizards. Two wizards? Two wizards. Two wizards. Really quick, I just want to talk about the ideas of the complicity of evil. Uh-huh, yeah. So, um, you know, if a man steals a loaf of bread to feed his family, is it evil? Well, no. It's a faceless corporation. A guy steals a cigarette truck and sells those cigarettes to his family at a price that's practically giving them away. Is that a crime? Yeah, probably. Um, if a person says something and it's really fucked up, but they're also responsible for, like, probably turning on a generation to reading, where do you draw the line? <laughs> and so, to that end... When the PlayStation Network has a video game by <laughs> using that aforementioned person's IP and you buy it, yeah. where on the scale of evil am I? Because I've been playing Hogwarts Legacy for about seven hours um, <laughs> as of the time we recorded this. Literally bought it last night, recorded yep. that bitch because I was like, this looks cool as hell and I don't know anything about Harry Potter. Um, well, yeah. And Josh, all I've done is play with fucking, there's a pet catting but or sorry, let me try this again. There's a cat petting button. Oh, and all I've done is pet goddamn cats and, like, <laughs> shoot yeah. kids with magic spells. And I am just having mm-hmm. the time of my life as a little purple-haired wizard girl. Yeah, yeah. No, I... So, since, since you asked, I am able... Caveat, footnote, endnote. Um, I am, generally speaking, able to separate the art from the artist. Generally speaking. Um, Ender's Game is a great novel, but Orson Scott Card kind of kind of crazy. Um, yeah, he gets a little problematic. He 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 does. Um, again, as I as I have said uh, on many an episode, uh, some of my friends back in Colorado were like giving me hell about, oh, you're gonna study ancient Greek theater, these old dead white guys. That's what you're gonna do. You're not gonna, you know. Use your privilege to like blah blah blah, and it's like, well, it's it, it's a, I mean, one huge huge disagreement about uh, describing uh, the ancient Greeks as just old dead white guys. We're setting that aside for now, um, but it is man, like that just that just turns into such a slippery slope and such a purity spiral, and that and and isn't that what happened? You know, isn't this author who turned on? an entire generation to reading and had so many people championing like, ah, these books are so great because they speak for, uh, uh, marginalized voices and okay, whatever her like characters are like pretty horrible stereotypes of like whatever country or ethnicity, but dang it, it's about the power of friendship or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, you start to drink from that well, talk about, like, complicity. It's like, oh, actually, did you know that this main character, uh, he's he's actually gay or whatever? Uh, and so you start to, like, try to pander the, to, to that very same crowd. And then you say something that to you seems completely reasonable. And then that crowd just explodes. So, again, man, like, I say watch the movie, read the book, play the video game, do, do, do whatever... And, like, let that stand or fall on its own merits. Because, yeah, once we get into this whole, like, oh, this person's problematic or blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, then where where does it end? Where does yeah. it end? And how am I going to pet digital cats in a video game? How? You know? Like, I'm super... 
a week from today, we're probably not going to record because I'm going to be in a Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom <laughs> induced coma. Uh, but I don't go on and on about like, oh, d- let me tell you about all the war crimes that Japan committed in World War II. Like, because again, like at some point, like, yeah, like you have to say like, look, yes, those are horrible things that happened. Uh, I don't agree with them. By playing Zelda, I'm not sanctioning, what was it, like Unit 143 or whatever that 740, was? 731, yeah. 731. I, I got two of the digits, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, so I say, and that's you doing your wizard work. You know, like you have a podcast that is nearing on three years in production. Um, and so like you are doing your wizardly diligence in checking this thing out and... Seeing if the spells hold up, seeing if uh, goblin blood really is as delicious as... <laughs> it's a lot of fun so far. Like I said, yeah. I, I'm only like seven hours in, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a really pretty game. I'm playing it on PlayStation 4, so like it's not, oh, nice. you know, current gen, but like it's pretty. Um, there's little things everywhere, like just little bits, like... You know, and I think the other thing is too. I think the best. I want to say it was um, zero punctuation. Uh, Yahtzee Croshaw. I think it was oh, his yeah. review, and he yeah. talks about like, is it more wrong to you know not do a thing because the creator said some sh- something shitty, or to ignore the work of literally hundreds of people over hundreds of right. hours for a thing? Exactly. And it's like that's the that's the bigger I think problem mm-hmm. there because like. There's a lot of love put into it. Like, just little things. Like, all the all the pictures move. I don't know shit about Harry Potter. I know, like, all the pictures moving is something. Mm-hmm. But all the pictures yeah. are animated. There's fucking people, like... There's a themed hallway with, like, several members of a band. And they will play together. Yeah. Or sometimes yeah, awesome. they won't because the dude who plays flute, he fucked off. So, like, there's just this chick laying down a sweet lute solo. Like, it's all <laughs> these little things. And it's just... It's just charming, and you get into it, but then at the same time, it's it's literally just the like, okay, now, here's your next spell, but first, I need you to go get six Fwibble Fwabbles. Ah, yes, yeah. Fwibble Fwabbles are important. We'll never use them again, and it's it's that. It's a AAA game, so mm-hmm. it's still going to suck, but at the same time, like, I guess I give it one wizard up. Yeah. <laughs> no, th- th- that is a very astute point as well, that... Again, by by giving this one individual so much power and so much sway, is aren't you like, aren't you like summoning the very evil that you think you're trying to de- defeat? Josh, that was weird. An owl just hit my window, and it says, "Welcome yeah. to the Two Wizards Podcast." My name is Mark, and I'm a wizard. My name is Josh, and I'm a wizard. And thank you for joining us once more. Where we, again, well, and, and honestly, right, that was the whole uh, last week. And I was like, look, we don't get political. We're, we are beyond the, 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 the mere uh, machinations of, of the silly mortal and material plane. We have, we, have, uh, we have blood gems that we need to, like, <laughs> sort out. <laughs> I also um, am a big believer in there's a lot bigger problems going on, and maybe we don't need to get bent out of shape. That's, like that's, it's that's there's so many smoke screens like yeah just, exactly look over you know. here get worked up about this yeah you're exactly right you're exactly right uh and pay also, no attention to the bad man behind the curtain yeah like yeah no totally 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 that's just it if you're if you're always running after and like amped up about something like your your body can only pump out so much cortisol until it starts to add up and then and then yeah when when really important like really pressing things uh come up 
you're yeah you're all like comatose and stressed out and and you, and you can't fight the good fight anyway so so here here so let us let's do the opposite let's let's try to alleviate let's try to dissipate some of that cortisol let's sit back in our nice wizard's chairs uh pour some lovely things into our wizard's cups uh i am going back i, I, I i've been kind of waffling and i don't know maybe I'm, I'm maybe some inspiration will strike eventually um but i'm going back to uh the old standboy oh god what the hell was that the old standboy the old standboy <laughs> <laughs> uh lone lone river ranch water uh old stand boy um, blimey blimey uh and i i'm starting off with their original they're just original one so okay yeah how about you man um i don't know i was lazy i wasn't a good wizard today i should have gone to the store i didn't so we played mark scrape together his uh cup tonight I'm drinking a Hemingway. Um, oh, plain. yeah. So this is Yorkshire gold tea that I brewed um, oh, nice. with uh, gin. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it. uh, yeah, it is light and refreshing. Mm-hmm. I can I can absolutely dig it, man. That's great. Uh, well, here is on you, buddy. Cheers. Good buddy. The taste of agave nectar and lime. 80 calories, 4%. <laughs> Woo! Um, yeah, no, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, well, uh, actually, so yeah, so for this episode, um, and, and again, thought about maybe doing some sort of themed thing. I could have told you, Mark, hey, um, mix up some of your uh, podcasting rocket fuel. Uh, <laughs> thought about it. But, but, but we did some kind of spacey-themed drinks not too long ago. And with this topic... Like yes, eventually how this sort of how how, how I kind of came to, to prepping this episode was dealing with space, but it's not just that. There's there's a whole lot of other practical uh, and deadly applications of of our topic today. So it, it's all right that we didn't do uh, do like <laughs> whatever, didn't do some other sort of thing too. Um, so uh, this was one again of all the many many podcast topics that I kind of have rattling around in my brain. I woke up one morning and this one fell out of my ear and I was like, oh yeah, this will be great. This will be a lot of fun. But also just like the world that we're living in now, like uh, these events are happening constantly and it's almost becoming like mundane. It's almost becoming like, oh yeah, whoopty shit. Like this, this amazing, incredible thing that would have blown uh, the world's mind, the world's collective mind. Um, even as little as like a hundred years ago, it's like, oh yeah, that just happened again. Uh, and <laughs> of all the like terrible things that that could describe, this is awesome, terrible. Um, and we're going to be talking about rockets today. Uh, rocket ships, the history of rockets, some famous first rocketeers, um, and... Like with many of these topics, I tell myself, oh, ancient medicine, that'll be a breeze. Um, uh, food, food, food network of the ancient world, um, Antarctica, what, like, I don't know, maybe that's a reflection of me and my research discipline, because stumbling down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. But we are, we are going to talk very, we're going to very narrow our focus and just sort of talk about rockets here. So um, I guess kind of starting off with our typical open-ended uh, ice-breaking kind of question. Mark, where do you stand or sit 
or get launched into space um, on rockets. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was a child of the 90s. I feel like I was made to build a model rocket at least one time at, a, at one school in Denver. I know that mm-hmm. happened once. Okay. I know it exploded. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't really a rocket kid. I like space, but it wasn't like, yeah, rockets. It was more like, yeah, mm-hmm. Jupiter's cool. Yeah, yeah, okay. So like the like actual planets and like stars and stuff like that. Not necessarily the engineering and mechanics and all that stuff. Math is lame. Yeah, math is lame. Well, and we are also literally going to be talking about rocket science today, um, or at least like parts of it that I can barely wrap my mind around. Um, I mean, I was a pretty big. I was also a pretty big space kid growing up, uh, and I and I flexed with rockets a bit. Um, this was when we were still in California. Uh, so like pre-1992, uh, when I was like four or five years old, we had like a little... It wasn't like a full-on model rocket set, but it was like mm-hmm. a little sort of like, hey, you can like con- construct a construct a rocket and then like shoot it out of like a rubber band slingshot and have it fly. So that's kind of cool. Um, okay, okay. This was like following the like Challenger stuff though. So like that was kind of... That was kind of... <laughs> I don't know, I guess... Little two-year-old Josh didn't didn't quite register like the horrific tragedy that that was. Um, but then also, that's a good thing. I'm really glad is. that two-year-old yeah. Josh didn't get to register. Yeah, that did or, not. Like, yeah, did not get traumatized by that. Um, but then also a little later in like grade school, um, as I've mentioned before, pretty sure I've mentioned before, uh, big into Bill Nye the Science Guy. So whenever mm-hmm. the yeah the, the, those episodes about like yeah like space travel and rockets and astronauts and all that get super fired about that. Um, there was a space shuttle game for our Nintendo Entertainment System that we played, uh, like oh, rented wow. a couple times, and it was hard as hell, uh, as you might imagine, because like, yeah, like you know, like you like launch and you go up and you're in orbit and doing stuff, and then trying to like land back again was just was just crazy. Um, <laughs> and then much more recently, so we're getting out of the '90s. Much more recently. Uh, in the 2010s, there's this other little game that came out by an independent studio, uh, and the game is called Kerbal Space Program, where yeah. you basically run the equivalent of NASA for these like kind of cute, funny, the like little minion dudes from the Despicable <laughs> Me franchise. You basically run NASA for them, and you like build rockets, and it's all based on like um, some. Newtonian physics. I don't know. I don't think they get into like special relativity, and uh, <laughs> uh, they 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 are they are limited with their game engine to just simulating a two body gravity system as opposed to a true truly n body gravity system. Um, and holy cow, spent thousands of hours building rocket ships and flying them around in this little like solar system on Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> Uh, uh, Kerbal Space Program 2, the much-anticipated sequel, that came out recently. But as with many other things, I didn't buy it because I need to finish uh, grad school. Um, (laughs) And then also just recently, uh, going back to complicity and evil, I guess, Mark, love or hate uh, Elon Musk, SpaceX does really cool stuff. Um, And they're truly revolutionizing spaceflight. They had a test launch of their, um, not their, not their Falcon Heavy, their, 
Oh God, I'm totally. Oh, I just own myself right now. Goddamn, <laughs> SpaceX. Uh, not 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 Falcon Heavy because that's a big one. Starship. They're Starship. That's what it's called. And it's this okay. giant, enormous rocket that is on par with something like an Atlas V. Um, and it was their like first like test flight, and they kind of did it. It was kind of going well. And then it did not go well, and there was a big explosion, and it was awesome. That was the one that just blew up. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, that was the one that okay. just blew up. Um, it was a test flight. It's not like there were people on board. It's not like they had a satellite or anything. Um, but right, so like SpaceX, and we'll, and again, I promise I won't turn into a complete SpaceX fanboy. Although I am a SpaceX fanboy. Elon Musk, I could take him, I can take it, I could take or leave Elon Musk, but SpaceX is super cool, and they're doing great stuff. Well, but so, you know, I think that ties into complicity of evil, too. No one at SpaceX is responsible for anything that Elon Musk does. Um, You know, kind of like, and I don't know if you're going to touch on this or not. I don't know if you knew this, Josh. The American rocket program wasn't exactly made by the best dudes. We will will touch base. And maybe an American hero really just got really, you know, (laughs) really chummy with some of the worst people yeah like 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 if there was really some you know villains in history yeah Mm -hmm. but hey that's but that's are you a piece of shit because you went to epcot in 1996 with your family to vacation (laughs) yeah fuck you little josh reader fuck you you piece (laughs) of shit like (laughs) well and that is also i I am very glad that you brought that up because truly what i am this topic is so massive i'm really just trying to focus on just the tiniest little peak and perhaps in follow-up episodes, if we want to, you know, get into the space race, if we want to get into like, um, yeah, like the actual spacecraft, like, well, what do you do when you're actually up in space? But for, for our purposes today, we're just focusing on like this vehicle, this machine, this glorified tube with boom, boom powder in it. Um, <laughs> we're just, we're just going to focus on that. Um, and because it wouldn't be a Josh-led Two Wizards episode if we didn't get at least a little etymological. Mark, do you have any guesses where the word rocket comes from? I don't know. It sounds dumb and clunky. Polish? Oh, I mean, I could kind of see that. Um, it actually comes... Rocket! Yeah. <laughs> uh, it comes from the Italian word rocchetto, or rocchetto. I think that's it. Rocchetto. Uh, which is a name for a bobbin. Or a spool of, like, thread. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because that was kind of the shape that it took on. Or at least by the time this technology came to continental Europe, uh, someone's like, Hey, Luigi, look at this thing. Looks like a little rocchetto. Ah, I see. I, I, can't even do, I can't even do my Italian. Rocchetto. I can't even do Italian here. I'm tor- horrible. <laughs> Sorry, Italy. I love your pasta. But your language still kind of trips me up. Um... And yeah, basic, the, 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 the key thing to keep in mind here um, is we are absolutely in the territory. The whole reason why this works, we're actually in the, in the territory of Isaac Newton's third law, uh, uh, where, where it is, and that is basically um, equal and opposite reactions from a force. If a force is pushing you this hard in one direction, well, there's another force that's pushing you just as hard in the opposite direction. And by leveraging that fundamental law of the universe, that's how rockets work. Um, huh. And yeah. 
And so, like I was saying before, there's so many different ways that, that I could go with this, but but at least to start, and maybe in follow-up episodes, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if our listeners want more. Um, at least to start, we're going to talk about, the yeah, the, the actual machinery, the actual device, the vehicle. W- what does it take to put some sort of stationary thing on Earth up into space or into orbit? And again, maybe later on we can actually get into like, like tr- once you're up in space, traveling around, because like Hall effect thrusters are crazy. Orbital mechanics is is weird. We can talk about different kinds of like actual spaceships. We can talk about human space travel. We we can do that all later. But for right now, just the basics, um, like just this thing that you light a match under and then it goes up. Um, mm-hmm. And there are two main forces uh, that you need to overcome. Uh, in order to like propel a rocket and hopefully even get it to space. And those are gravity and atmospheric drag. Um, okay. Gravity, of course, objects with mass tend to gravitate, tend to move towards each other. And so everything gets pulled down. In our local instance here, it gets pulled down to essentially the center of the Earth. I won't get too pedantic about it, but it, but right. The gravity of the Earth is pulling us down, and we need to overcome that somehow. Right. Okay, so right. So gravity is one. That, that, that's yes. the first force we have to overcome. And then the second force uh, is drag, which is, of course, when performers enact exaggerated caricatures of femininity and masculin- masculinity oh, in a camp. Oh, no. <laughs> damn it, Josh. No. <laughs> Stop no, trying to for. groom me. Different drag. God damn it. Suddenly Different I... Drag. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Oh, man. I saw a man in a dress, and now my whole perception of reality is so destroyed. Ah. Ah. Again, ah, we're just... It's melting like a rocket brain. Ah. <laughs> we're, we're just hitting all the hot-button issues in this episode. No, of course... It's all right, because I was going to make a joke when you did the law of relativity of like, oh, so just like when a certain author of a book alienates a pretty smallish <laughs> group of people, they also pick up all the heat from the side of the other group of people that they alienated who hated that group, and then they get a super big boost, and it kind of makes this like feedback loop of momentum and yes-anding ourselves into just <laughs> stupidity. But in your case, it's escaping the Earth's atmosphere. I understand. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Like gotcha. putting too um, much air into a balloon. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so... Gravity is by and large the mo the, the more important force, and there's there's lots of other ones there. And if you're on a on a planet or a moon that doesn't have an atmosphere, hey, you don't have to worry about atmospheric drag. And then you can, that changes the game entirely too. So many simplifications going on here, and there's gonna the, these are the first of many. But for right now, the big ones, the biggest one is gravity, but also bearing in mind atmospheric drag. So that's what we got to do. That, that, those are the two things we need to counteract, overcome. In order to like launch okay. a rocket, um, so let's talk about historically how we did that or how we took those first first steps. Um, rocketry, of course, dates back uh, and and is first kind of founded with the invention and application of gunpowder, which uh, of course first occurred in China. Um, do you have any guesses as to about how long ago this was? Like what century CE? Wasn't it uh, 600? It's a little early. Um, but we're looking at like, well, okay, so there's some, some say, some say 
that it goes back is like the 900s, like the 10th century um, okay. in China. But we have stronger evidence that uh, goes to the 13th century, so like the late 1200s. Um, wow. Also blows my mind, that entire 400-year period, 300-year period, 400-year period, uh, is all under just the Song Dynasty. Um, yeah. We need to do an episode on, like, Dynastic China, because there's some crazy cool stuff in there. Um, that's going to be like, that's, that's like season eight, when we just devote the entire, like, month of December. Right, exactly. Yeah, to, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's super cool, super cool stuff. Like that, that cycle is insane, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so gunpowder is a mixture of sulfur and carbon, usually in the, in the form of charcoal, uh, and this uh, compound that is commonly called saltpeter, but we, but it's more, uh, but, but its chemical name is potassium nitrate. And that's why when you're playing Civ Six and you discover nitrate, when, when you un- unlock that strategic resource, it is a game changer. Uh, <laughs> you get that Eureka for rifling, and then you're just, you yeah, that. it's over. Yeah. And then it's game over. Uh, and so when these three, these two elements, and then this uh, uh, compound, um, when, when they're ground up, and they're mixed in a specific ratio and packed and ignited. Um, so the carbon and the sulfur burn rapidly. Uh, but what makes them burn so rapidly is not just the oxygen in the air, but specifically the oxygen from that uh, potassium nitrate, which is mm-hmm. uh, a chemical formula KNO3. So there's like extra oxygen packed in to this physical uh, uh, solid, and that causes it to burn. And keyword here, because this is something I learned as a wizard. So yeah, this this uh, a gunpowder technically deflagrates, de- de- deflagrates, deflagrates. Deflagrate? It does not de- deflagrate something like that. Yeah, which is a subsonic combustion, and it does not detonate, which is a supersonic combustion. Oh, interesting. So it burns at, and the pressure waves that it emits are at a subsonic speed. It's still really fast versus something like TNT, which technically detonates and is supersonic. Um, gotcha. So the more you know. Um, and when that process happens, if you, if, uh, and it's emitting all this, all this force, if you can contain and direct that force all in one direction, you get thrust. Giggity. Yes. And, Giggity. <laughs> and that is that is the main force that we use to counteract the other vor- forces of gravity and atmospheric drag. So with enough thrust, all of life's problems go away. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> we're, we're doing rockets here. There, there's going to be all sorts of all sorts of raunchy jokes here. Um, they know what they're here for. They know what's going on. Yeah, they, they know. They know. Um, so better not bring your kids. <laughs> better not bring your kids. Two wizards, um, <laughs> two wizards, ooh, two wizards. Yeah, see, that's what we're missing. We need a need a harmonica, man. Dang, which is weird seven. because our intro is a harmonica. Like, uh, yeah, well, true. That is true. But we need our own physical ones that we can kind of cut in and out with. Um, but but at any rate, so yes. Uh, uh, join us next week, this, guys. Join us next week. As this technology was getting developed um, in and around China, uh, of course, some of its early applications were in warfare. Um, 
specifically dating all the way back to 1232 with documented reports of fire arrows, uh, Huo Jiang, uh, and iron pots packed with black powder or gunpowder, um, which would explode on contact. You'd launch them into the air, they'd explode and then spray shrapnel everywhere. So, mm -hmm. uh, what is that? Almost 800 years ago, we, we collectively, but specifically there in China, they're like, hey, this stuff is neat. Let's, let's use it to kill other people. <laughs> do you know you can do this? Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, shoot. And like, I, there's, I was doing, so, again, didn't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but wouldn't you know it, there's also apparently some medical applications to gunpowder, but we're setting that aside, we're setting that aside. Um, about a hundred years later, there was a, uh, a document uh, in the 14th century, the Huolong Jin, uh, aka the Fire Dragon Manual, that uh, contained all sorts of different recipes and applications for various uses. So yeah, you had your fire arrows in there. You also had the phalanx charging fire gourd, uh, Changzen Huo Hu Lu. Um, you had various uh, uh, recipes for bombs, for landmines. You had proto cannons like the flying cloud thunderclap eruptor, Fei Yung Pi Li Pao. Uh, and even multi-staged rockets like the fight, like the fire dragon rising out of the water, Hualong Chu Shui, uh, the importance of which we'll return to later. Having multi-stage rockets is a game changer. But, mm -hmm. what, but there it is. All the way back in like the 1300s, here's like an entire book about how to rain fire uh, down on your foes. It's incredible. <laughs> um, if you if if you look up, yeah, the uh, a fire dragon manual, or sometimes it's translated as the fire drake manual. Okay. Um, just on just on the on your preferred internet browser uh, search engine, or just go to the Wikipedia page for that. There's some sweet ass illustrations of all these devices and weapons and stuff. Um, it's yeah. badass. It's so stinking cool. So stinking cool. Um, so while this originated in China, it quickly moved west uh, thanks to the Mongols, of course. Um, so they mm -hmm. so they picked up this technology, and as Mongols were doing their Mongols things and moving westward, um, the next sort of set of attested uh, uh, documents dealing with gunpowder and uh, uh, black powder uh, is in the Islamic world again about the same time, like mid to late twelve hundreds. So you can see how quickly. This technology spread. Um, it's like, well, hey, it why? Well, what come out of China on the Silk Road, right? So, right, yeah, yeah, like either the Silk Road and or just as the Mongols were spreading westward, pushing and conquering yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, pushing, uh, doing all right. Um, the uh, uh, there was a Syrian man, Hassan al Rama, uh, who wrote uh, gunpowder recipes in his manual, the Book of Military Horsemanship and Ingenious War Devices. I'll, Al Furusiya wa al Manasib al Harbiya, and Al Rama um, cites cites Chinese sources um, in his recipes, and oh, and cool. he yeah, and he calls saltpeter um, uh, Chinese snow. <laughs> Weird. It's a little. I mean, this is I, I think well definitely pre cocaine, definitely pre opium. So I guess that was the original <laughs> Chinese snow. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, uh, continental Europe was not too far behind. Um, European sources described gunpowder as early as 1267, so only a couple decades. 
Um, in Roger Bacon's texts, Opus Majus and Opus Tertium. Um, the oldest written recipes uh, are attributed to one, to an individual, and you'll uh, uh, appreciate this, good sir. The oldest written gunpowder recipes in continental Europe are attributed to Marcus Grycus, a.k.a. Mark the Greek. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a ruse this whole time. It's been a ruse this whole time. I truly am a wizard. I'm hundreds of years old. It was me. It was me Immortal. who wrote... It was me who wrote the Liber Ignium, the Book of Fires. Um, oh, you're goddamn right. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, the Liber Ignium, super sweet. Um, uh, so yes, all sorts of cool stuff, and I and, and I love that. I and again, I'm trying not to just turn every Two Wizards episode into like this one time when I was playing Civ Six. But isn't that the thing, right? You like you develop the technology to have spies and you tell them to mm -hmm. go like spy in this other civs uh, uh, um, uh, campus district and like steal technologies and stuff. Uh, or yeah, when you have these things happen to you, you get a eureka moments, so you can research them faster. That's like, that's where that game mechanic comes from. It, it's the sharing, either intentional or sort of like reverse engineering sharing of technology that like, and it mm -hmm. spreads, it spreads like crazy. That's so stinking cool. That's great. Like, but also it's cool to see like the spread just in a like, what pre-modern era, like even just yeah. as, as quick as it can spread is pretty much, you know, set by how quick a camel can move, I guess, or a horse. Yeah, exactly. And even right. then it's like, you know, you're not going to be in the village that was besieged by the Mongolians. So you're not going to talk about it, but it'll get out there eventually. And then everybody's oh, yeah, going right. to talk about it. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, and that's why like, yeah, like military secrets and industrial espionage is like such a big thing too. So, um, and so, and so, yes. And so of, of course, some of it's, some of gunpowder's earliest applications were for warfare. They were for things like making bombs and cannons and, um, all that stuff too. And, and, it, it's, it's sort of hard to separate the history of, like, gunpowder in warfare and the history of, like, rockets. Because, like, well, rockets started off as these fire arrows. Um, and advancements made in this sort of discipline would, of course, carry over to the other one. And then, of course, when we get to, like, like the, like, 20, 20th century space race, like, yeah, like, they, they were inseparable. Uh, like warfare and rocketry and all that. Too. But but again, we'll we'll get there eventually. Um, but also a, a quick little divergence into some historical examples of gunpowder and rocketry, not for war but for traveling. Because again, very early on, uh, certain individuals realized, hey, we could use this to get around. Um, so the first person credited with making a successful crude as in like c-r-e-w-e-d but also crude as in c-r-u-d-e <laughs> um rocket both flight. Are right well yeah both i think both are apt in this case but but the first person to actually have another man another human on a rocket and fly and land in one piece is apparently one lagari hassan jalebi uh and his attempt is described in an account in a travel. Ooh, excuse me. Ooh, there we go. Um, got your own. Is, you got your own retro I, rocket to fire in. I, I do. Yeah, I was I was firing retrograde there. Um, <laughs> um, 
Uh, this is an account written by one Evlia Jalebi. No relation. No relation. <laughs> Common last name, I guess. Okay. The story goes, in 1633, Ligari, uh, an Ottoman scientist, loaded up 140 pounds of gunpowder into a seven-winged vehicle cage oh barrel kind of thing. We, we, we have some illustrations. We don't exact, we're not exactly sure. The story goes, 140 pounds of gunpowder into this uh, a device, and he set it up on the Surrey Bernu promontory near the Topkapu Palace um, of Sultan Murad IV in Istanbul. So he was right. He was, he was on the doorstep of the Sultan's palace where he set this thing up. Oh my um, god, okay. I love this guy. Uh, before his launch, Ligari apparently cried out, Oh my Sultan, be blessed. I am going to talk to Jesus. <laughs> yes. Yes, Rock King. Yes, so yes. stinking cool. I love this guy. Ligari himself climbed in. Maybe he had a set of, like, wings? Um, he had a brother who was, like, also experimenting with, like, yeah, like, kind of, like, early attempts at flight and all that. So maybe Ligari had a set of wings. Maybe he had a parachute. But he apparently climbed into this thing, lit it. The vehicle took off, flew some height and distance. Some people, I, there's different things. I, some people are saying, like, maybe, like, a thousand feet, something like that. Uh, and landed in the sea. He apparently survived, swam back to shore, and said, Oh, my Sultan, Jesus sends his regards to you. <laughs> that is amazing. I love this that guy. Is... This guy's so stinking cool. So yeah, this dude launched himself in a homemade rocket a thousand feet or, or under, at, at most a thousand feet in the air, lived to tell about oh it, God. swam back, and had like a baller like punchline to what he said before. <laughs> I, I am, I am amazed. I am stunned. I yeah, this guy. The sweet. lived, he lived. That's what yeah, bothers me, Josh. Like yeah, and he lived. And so dude, Peggy uh, healed himself. And <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so as a result of this, uh, the Sultan Sultan Murad the Fourth awarded him a whole bunch of silver uh, and the rank of uh, Sipai in the Ottoman army. So he was like a, like a cavalryman kind of officer um, mm. as a result of this. Um, uh, many years later, what would that be? Almost, almost 400 years later, in 2009, there's an episode of Mythbusters that attempted to replicate Ligari's flight using period-appropriate technology. Um, mm -hmm. So they set out to do this. This was season seven, uh, episode nine, I think. And it's, it's, it's called Crash and Burn. Um, it's not on YouTube. Well, th there are clips on YouTube, but they totally leave you blue balled where it's like, all right, here's like, let's, let's get ready for it. And then they don't show anything. Um, but if you go to, but if they go to daily, Mo but if you go to daily motion on the on, on daily motion, they have the website, they have the episode in full and you can watch it. And so the Mythbusters um, uh, tried to replicate this and they said like, look, we don't even know what the design is supposed to be like. There's not really any landing equipment on this thing. The, uh, we, we don't like welding wasn't invented yet. Uh, the mm -hmm. like, like the like sort of steel alloys that we use today, like that wasn't invented yet. There's no way this is going to work. Um, 
But nevertheless, they built it, they lit it, and it took off, reached about 100 feet in the air. Uh, It flipped, and then it crashed. Um, Hmm. As they do, they put Buster, the crash test dummy, inside, uh, strapped him up with a parachute that did not deploy, and yeah, Buster was severely burned. <laughs> so the Mythbusters in 2009 didn't quite pull it off, but Ligari uh, Hassan Jalebi in 1633, he did. <laughs> I really like the idea of like co-opting God to mm-hmm. do science. I'm gonna yeah. go. I'm just gonna go pop up and talk to Jesus. Number one, yeah. we can get high enough to just we'll we'll break that and go talk to Jesus. Yeah, that's so stinking cool. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um. So so yeah, that was the first. Um, as Herodotus would maybe describe, this is a very Herodotian story. Um, that that was the first successful manned rocket flight. Um, a couple hundred years later. Uh, I want to draw our attention to one Claude Ruggieri. Uh, Ruggieri was an Italian pyrotechnician uh, living in France. And he came from a long family of fireworks designers and crafters and pyrotechnics. So that was a family trade, was making fireworks and stuff. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, Ruggieri was friends with André-Jacques Gonnerin. Um, who was the official aeronaut of France and inventor of the frameless parachute. Oh, damn. So he, so as an expat living in France, um, got, got together with uh, André Jacques. And so he started experimenting with rockets and balloons, because ballooning was also very, very big and popular. Um, and Ruggieri uh, is the first person to launch and recover, keyword being recover, living creatures animals with rockets um and this is this is about 200 years after ligari so as early as 1806 ruggieri launched mice and rats into the air with rockets and then parachuted them back down to earth (laughs) which i love (laughs) i love that mental image it's Um, precious adorable um i don't i if, if I had a little more time and if I were like an actual researcher, I would see if like it was just, if they were just in a box or if they had individual separate parachutes. I kind of want them to have individual separate ones, but oh, yeah, just... we tiny little parachute. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's just wishful thinking. Um, a little after that, uh, he sent a sheep 600 feet into the air and brought it back down successfully using a parachute. Wow, so that's pretty again, pretty goddamn impressive. Um, and so he kept, he, he kept kind of going, going after this and experimenting and doing sort of things. And of course, doing like fireworks shows. He's a very popular guy. Um, uh, in 1830, Ruggieri, um, uh, wanted to like, again, like go where no lamb had gone before, I guess. Um, and he was, he was going to make a design. He was going to make a rocket design to lift a heavier animal, a larger animal, a ram into the air. Oh, okay. Uh, the story goes, uh, some, some rando, some, some strange young man volunteered to take the ram's place and said, Oh, no, monsieur, you, you should send me up into the air instead. Um, uh, but the French authorities caught wind of this and intervened and stopped it. So 
Maybe that could have been the first manned rocket launch, but darn French police. Fucking nanny state. Nanny state bullshit. Uh, <laughs> this is why everything needs to be deregulated, Josh. Yeah. Exactly. Nobody should be able to stop you from doing whatever dumb thing you want, no matter how many innocent people might get hurt. I mean, why do you think, like, the two, like, largest rocket launch um, <laughs> uh, 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 spaceports are in Texas and in Florida? Because it is. It's like, you just need to do whatever you want. <laughs> I thought it was because of the ocean. And also because of the ocean. You're, you're oh, I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, no, no, no. You, you're, I was like, wait, I thought it was because the ocean was there to catch yes. the rockets as they fell. That is that is the, that is is the one of the main points. But yes, I was also making a funny. Um, <laughs> Ruggieri, Claude Ruggieri, was launching animals, could have had the first human launch. Like the first, like, really thoroughly attested one. But dang it. Yeah. Didn't quite work. Yeah. But this would come, again, about 100 years later with uh, uh, Fritz von Opel. And he was the first human verified to leave the Earth's surface via rocket power. Um, And this happened in 1929. And he was was piloting the Opel RAK-1. Or maybe the Opel RAK-3, depending on how we're numbering prototypes here. But maybe. okay. Uh, so uh, Opel, O P E L, uh, German guy. So you probably couldn't guess Fritz. Um, he and his yeah, kind of like family business. Uh, they they were getting into like other forms of like rocket powered transportation. They made like rocket powered cars. They made rocket powered trains. Um, uh, one of his earliest experimentations uh, took out the internal combustion engine from from one of these race cars. And uh, put twelve black powder rockets in for its propulsion instead. And, oh wow! Okay. Uh, they in this this vehicle reached a velocity of a um, hundred kilometers per hour, which is about one hundred and sixty miles per hour. Um, in April, nineteen twenty-eight. So about a year twenty-eight. That is insane. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Super super cool. Uh, oh no! Wait, actually, did I get that backwards? I think I got that backwards. I think that's sixty miles an hour. Mm. I, I I got that backwards. Sorry. So yeah. So still, I mean, putting twelve rockets to a car and then taking off. Okay. Later, kind of inspired by this, uh, Opel purchased a sailplane. So this is kind of like a glider. Think like an early glider. Okay. Um, yeah. That was designed by one Alexander Lippisch, and this model of sailplane was called. Dienta. Uh, and so Opel took this plane, put rockets on it, and this Raketenenta, which is German for rocket duck. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was the first time anybody built a rocket plane. Um, but it was destroyed on its second test flight. Oh no. So they used kind of like a like an like a like a pulley cable elastic rope to like launch it. And then it would kind of glide, and then they glided, and then when it was in midair, they were going to try to fire the rocket. So they were gliding around, gliding around, landed it. That was great. It's like, all right, boys, now it's time. So they launched it via this rope in this, like, giant slingshot. Uh, one of the two engines, well, one of the two rocket engines, exploded in midair. And so, oh the, and so the pilot, Fritz Stammer, uh, crash-landed from a height of about... 
65 feet. Um, <laughs> and then, like, got the fuck out of there before this thing, like, caught on fire and killed him. And, and then that's what happened. This, the, the, so the rocket duck uh, burnt to a crisp. <laughs> Not for the, yeah, so that was the first one they built. So, after this initial, after this first kind of go around, um, uh, Opel commissioned engineer uh, Julius Hatchery and built to, to build another sailplane. Um, but like from the like from the ground up, we're, we're building this thing, we're making it a rocket plane, um, with a set of 16 black powder rockets mounted to the aft of the fuselage. So, there's the nose. There's the cockpit where the pilot's sitting, there's the aft, and then there's the rockets right behind the pilot. Holy shit. <laughs> God, you're just right there. Yeah, right there. Well, but um, you know what? If it goes bad, mm-hmm. I would rather it just go bad. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if it's well, not it, going to work, I want it to not work so well that I just don't need to worry about worrying yeah. about it not going so well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just well, and, instant. And, and, Mm-hmm. Well, and, and and I think that's it. I think they realized too because the rocket duck had two engines. Um, I think I think yeah, kind of mounted uh, on the sides, and so, so one of them blew up. So yeah, I think that was main part of it too. Is like, look, if we localize all of the thrust just behind the cockpit there, maybe that'll be. And so what, if one of them fails, then it won't be like as catastrophic. I think that was the intention. Um, Interesting. Okay. So with this plane. That and again, depending on how we label it, do we count the rocket duck as as an early one? Do we count it as a different thing? So this is either RAK.1 uh, or RAK.3. And so the morning of September 30th, 1929, um, they they got together, they got everything laid out. The plan, uh, their flight plan, uh, would have taken off from a plane, uh, as in like a grass, a grassy area. <laughs> um <laughs> From Frankfurt to the Opel Automotive Automobile Works Factory uh, in Rüsselsheim, about uh, 16 kilometers away, about 10 miles away. So their original plan was like, all right, we blow this bad boy up. We've done the math. Let's see if we can't go 10 miles with this thing. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Okay. That morning, a telegram arrived. So they're getting things set up. A telegram arrives from uh, government officials in nearby Kassel banning any test flights. Uh, this telegram was delivered by one Major Helmuth Felmi. He passed this message along to Opel, and then he also said, quote, all test flights are forbidden. Take off quick. I haven't had the telegram yet. <laughs> so here's this German <laughs> yes. officer risking his, like, promote, like, like, risking, like, getting, like, dishonorably discharged. He's like, hey, buddy, you're not supposed to do this. Like, command is coming in. You're not supposed to do this. So you better make this quick before, like, I oh no, I left the telegram in my other uh, coat <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, and so, 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 so they did it. So uh, there were two attempts, one at 9 a.m. and one at 11 a.m., uh, which were failures. Um, the rockets failed to ignite, and the craft just kind of, like, skidded along the ground. I don't know, like 50 feet or something like that. But the third attempt around uh, 3.30 or 4 o'clock p.m. that afternoon um, launched from the little launcher thing, fired up the rockets, and uh, Opel 
was piloting it this time. He didn't have a different pilot. He was actually piloting it. Um, he leveled off at a, at a flight ceiling of about 100 feet, reached speeds of up about 90 miles an hour, and he traveled about two miles for it with a total flight time of 75 seconds. And so oh, he wow. Did. Um, he would have gone a little farther, but apparently there was a downward gust of wind that mm. sort of like took him off course. So he had to terminate the fight, the flight prematurely. Um, and he only fired five of the 16 rockets. Oh shit. Okay. So that's what, like uh, about a third. Yeah. Like a third. Yeah. So if they got about two miles using only a third and you already have some momentum, you already have some lift going, I mean, may, maybe 10 miles. Maybe it was pretty reasonable. I don't know. I'm sure it um, kind of compounds, right? Like if you're, you kind of get up there and you can kind of coast down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. Further, right. Yeah. yeah you're not. Yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so, so, but yeah, apparently there was a gust of wind that took him off course kind of. And so, so he had to crash land. Um, but in the crash landing, the landing skid broke off. The floor of the cockpit sheared off. And oh, wow. uh, Opal, the pirate, the the pilot, was just suspended by his like safety belt, his like safety harness. Holy shit! Otherwise, he would have yeah gotten like not well not road rash, but yeah, he would have got his ass like sandpapered at like eighty yeah. miles an hour <laughs> on like rough, bumpy, you know, like um, definitely yeah. So, but that was that was it. That was the first um, human rocket powered flight. That That's crazy. We, that we have. Yeah, that we have. And that was, so, and what year was that in? That was 1929. Wow. Yeah. What's even cooler, Mark, and for, not only for you, but also for, for the listeners, um, there's a newsreel of these attempts. And so if you go to YouTube, you can you can look up uh, uh, Opel R-A-K uh, dot one rocket flight and, and, you'll, and you'll see it. You'll see... You'll see the first attempt kind of fail. You see the second attempt kind of fail. And then you see the third one. And boy, howdy, if this motherfucker isn't flying a plane uh, that is rocket powered. <laughs> that is crazy. It's I love super that cool. so much. Yeah, that's it's amazing. super, super cool. So so everybody, go. go. I'm, I'm even giving you permission. You can pause us right now. You can pause us right now. Go watch this little newsreel. It's all of like two minutes. And then after you've seen that glory, come back and we'll, and we'll get into more, more rockety goodness. <laughs> More rockety goodness. <laughs> Two wizards will be right back after these messages. Thanks for listening to this production of High Hammock Studios and High Hammock Productions. If you like this show, you may want to check out some of our other podcasts. I Can't Wait to Show My Kids is a cinema podcast where Brad and Mark discuss when, if ever, it's appropriate to show their kids some of our beloved cinematic masterpieces. It's the, it's so good, and you it it does, but it also does a really good job of not feeling like overly like saccharine. Do you know what I mean? At no point yeah. are we establishing, oh, what a great life he has. Like the first thing this woman does is teach him how to shoot a gun, and it's because and that's him, the first she thing takes. To do. She takes two fat kid shots at him too, like immediately, like while he's still standing out there outside the cop car, like yeah. Uh, what am I saying? Of course you're hungry. Look at you. <laughs> you're the man that ate the man that ate the pie. <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. Once again, thanks for listening to High Hammock Studios and High Hammock Productions. And now, back to Two Wizards. Well, moving on now to Prickly Pear. 
Probably, probably my pear. favorite one uh, out of out of the Ranch Water by Lone River. I think Prickly Pear is my favorite. Okay. Okay. I don't know. I've updated uh, to a Voodoo Ranger Experimental IPA. Hmm. It's a six point six. I'm. There's no beer in awesome. Almost, gang. We've been to this party, and uh, hey, summer's here, Josh. So even that's less true. beer. So yeah, cheers, that's good buddy. Right. Cheers, good buddy. I heard uh, or saw. No, this was on the radio because actually, I'm driving. Um, I'm actually there. There's a good '70s, '80s, '90s station, and there's like here's here's line and Kugel summer shandy. It's a taste of summer. It's like oh god. I remember 2014 being so excited for that for the first time and then just having that quickly wear off. <laughs> uh, I remember. I remember. I remember. I well, remember. all right. Well, back at back at the launch pad, I guess. Um <laughs> Okay, so we that was a very brief and 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 even incomplete history cuz that only got us to the to the 1930s. About and yeah. we're still, we're yeah, still yeah. a long ways off. Um, we're gonna. I think we're gonna do. I need to finish reading a book. We should do a paperclip episode because you did stop right at the right. 1930s and you know 1940. Yeah. No, I'd say about 1945. Some some real big things are going on in rocketry. Like yes, yes. Well, and and, and I was going to do uh yeah do like a quick. I don't know if it's like a we a we shop menu kind of run through, but I, I was going to give a. Quick shout out to uh, both uh, 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 Paperclip, um, yeah, to, to Operation Paperclip uh, and Operation uh, Osoavyekim. Yeah, I know the one you're saying, and I just don't know the one you're saying because. Yeah, the. How could you? Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very sorry. But um, yes, your yes, Russian is, is not up to snuff. You're a well, hack and I, a fraud, Josh. Well, then I was even telling myself, like, oh boy, okay, so I have, I have Chinese, Russian, uh, 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 Turkish. <laughs> I was like, God damn, I have a whole bunch of languages here that I'm just going to completely obliterate and make a fool out of myself. But, but hey, if that's not two wizards, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, yeah, pretty but, much. Uh, that's yeah, our but, brand. But like. that, that is us. That is us. And so, and see, I think I'm going to get... So yeah, and this is where we're going to get a, still kind of history, but also maybe a, a little more sciency. Um, and yes, even for my thousand hours in Kerbal Space Program or two thousand, how many ever it is, I'll have to double check on Steam. Um, well, and even sometimes I would like load up a whole bunch of um, uh, user-made mods to like make things more realistic. And, and I don't know if those hours get counted in the Steam uh, app. So uh, who knows how many thousands of hours. There's still a whole lot that just kind of blows my mind that it takes, that it took, it took people, Paula Tadena, Rocket Tadena, to, to figure this yeah. out. Um, and it's incredible. So so now, now the two streams are re-emerging. I sort of talked about like military application of rocketry and gunpowder. Then I sort of veered off to do the travel, and now they're going to like reunite, and it feels so—I don't even know what. But um, <laughs> yes, during during the 1930s and 40s, of course, uh, yes, like rocketry had all sorts of ginormous leaps and bounds uh, in technological advancements, 
And a lot of that was because we had this thing called World War II going on. <laughs> or about to go on. Um, so we're, we're, we're sort of going to like re... Yeah, we're, we're, those streams are converging again. Um, right. So yes, of course, I, I gave an overview of like the Chinese using rocketry. But of course, there's things like gunpowders and... Yeah, like gunpowder cannons and like hand cannons and the guns. There, there's all that stuff going on. And about the same time as Ruggieri was doing his rocket launches of various animals, um, a British mathematician by the name of William Moore drafted, came up with the first instance of what would be later called and more popularly known as the rocket equation. And this... Mm. And, and yeah, and so we're, we're getting kind of sciencey, we're getting kind of mathy, and I'm, I promise we're only just barely dipping a wizard's toe into this. Um, so so yeah, that was like early 1800s. Um, about a hundred okay. years later, this this same rocket equation would be independently discovered by Q. We shot music. The Russian Konstantin Tsiolkovsky in 1903, the American Robert Goddard in 1912, the Frenchman Robert uh, Esnault Peltry, and the German uh, Hermann Oberth in 1912. Which. Interesting. The second time I'm going to go back to like, this is just like the game of Civ. Like, everybody is like independently discovering the same sort of technology at the same time. And of course, it but makes just sense. not quite. Yeah, like that's yeah, but just not quite. And while there is, generally speaking, yes, this community of scholarship of of scholarship and and academia, these gentlemen scholars sharing their work, critiquing each other's work, building off of each other's work. I think it's also noteworthy that this seemed to be like a pretty closely guarded thing, where it's like, holy shit, like. I could be onto something here with this rocket equation. And then like five dudes in five different continents, or not, not continents, in five different countries all sort of like come, come across this at the same time, but they're not telling it. It's not like Tsiolkovsky came out in 1903 and said, hey world, gaze upon my rocket equation or William Moore a hundred years earlier. Like this is like, and I think this is where the military kind of aspect gets involved as well. Like, like, uh, armed forces coming in and say like, look, keep this shit under wraps because this th this could have huge implications for like doing warfare. Maybe that was the case. Maybe not always the case. But it's it's interesting that this was independently found by five different people in five different countries. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. And so I, I won't get into like the specifics of it because I don't even understand it. But basically, the the, the rocket equation is is fundamental in determining not exactly how far a rocket can go but how fast it can change its velocity which is kind of the same thing but kind of different because and you go faster so you will go further as you go faster it's do like orbital mechanics is like some of the most counterintuitive stuff that you could ever think of and like i just again like just sort of like playing around in the sandbox that is kerbal space program it was blowing my mind so so when we talk about traveling with cars we think about like miles per gallon right and like okay well right. like 
this fuel efficiency, I get 30 miles to a, the, the gallon and my tank holds 15 gallons. Ergo, I should get about 450 miles on a single tank under ideal conditions and blah, 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 and all that stuff, right? Right, right, right. And wind drag notwithstanding. Yeah, wind drag notwithstanding. If you're driving on a flat road, even just the friction of the tires on the ground. And in a lot of ways, space travel is easier because once you're out of the atmosphere, you don't have to worry about drag and you don't have to worry about all this stuff. But the problem with space travel is there's no shell stations orbiting the Earth. Like <laughs> the, the fuel that you put into this thing on the launch pad, that's all that you're going to get. So it's like, so it's like, okay, I get to fuel up my car only one time for the entire month. So how yeah. am I going to like, and you know, I, I got to go to work. I got to buy groceries. So like, and this, this is it. So like how, and so the rocket equation helps you figure that out. And so, and so the, the like key term here that the key unit is this thing is change of velocity or in like kind of scientific speak, it's Delta V Delta is the symbol for like change. So like the change of yes. velocity del yes. Delta V. And this delta V is expressed typically in um, meters per second or sometimes kilometers per second when you're like going really fast. So it's like, okay, how much delta V does a rocket need to go into orbit, for instance? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I'll go into some of those numbers here uh, just a little bit later on. And so in order to... So here's the formula, here's the e equation, and some of the factors, some of the variables that you plug in. Uh, you need to know the, the total weight of the vehicle with fluid, aka its wet mass. You need, a, you need to know the weight of the vehicle when it's, when it's spent all of its fuel, when it's, it's dry mass. You need to know okay. the efficiency of the rocket engine, which also includes the fuel type, because different types of fuel will have different efficiencies. Um, and the gravity of whatever body you're trying to orbit. So like if it's earth, you plug this thing in, if it's the moon, you plug that thing in or so like that. So with those variables, you, you plug everything in it and then that tells you how much Delta V, how fast you can go, which is how far you can go, how much you can change your velocity. And it's, and it's, and it's goofy. Um, and it's, it's goofy. And the best way to learn about this is to, download Kerbal Space Program and just play in the sandbox. Because you, you you crash these little green minions, but they bounce right back, and so it's fine. As opposed to, like, wasting uh, billions of dollars and human lives, it's these little kind of funny green men who like when things explode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're not so different, really. We, we're really not so different. Uh, this is also sometimes, it, it, this is expressed sometimes in the phrase, the tyranny of the rocket equation because <laughs> you might be you, you might think like oh well that's easy like okay just just like bring more fuel right like if you just bring more fuel that means you can go farther and but you got to get stronger to bring more so that's part of it like that means that your that that your total mass your your wet mass is is heavier and it's not like you're just bringing the fuel alone you need it in like pressurized tanks you need to attach it. So there's all this extra dry mass. And so 
it very quickly levels off and, and it plateaus and you get diminishing returns. So like maybe the first, I don't know, million gallons of fuel like gets you, you know, like, I don't know, I'll just say like, uh, yeah, like uh, 5,000 delta V, 5,000 meters per second of, of delta V. If you just double that, maybe you only get 8,000 a total. And so it, so it, so it levels off. It's like a, one way I've heard it described is it's like, okay, if you're going to go on a, uh, a trek across the Sahara Desert, you need to bring water with you. Because there's no, again, there's no like place where you can stop and refill your, your water bottle. Um, so, okay, so I'm going to bring my gallon jug of water. Well, actually, no, no, I can, I can bring two one-gallon jugs, but now I'm being weighed down by the second gallon. Well, maybe I'll just bring like a giant like office water, you know. And so the more water you bring, the more you need to bring, and, it, and it's diminishing returns. And eventually it's like you can only go so much further with, with, with whatever water. So that's, that's kind of what it is. And so, and so maximizing your delta V, um, uh, experimenting with different fuel types, um, cause like gunpowder is great, but it's, it's, uh, it's efficiency. It's specific impulse as it's called is not very good. You can have things just like kerosene. Um, uh, the first stage of the Saturn V, uh, rocket just burned kerosene. Um, rockets na nowadays typically use, um, either like liquid hydrogen and oxygen or sometimes liquid uh, methane and oxygen. So, so there's all these developments. The actual, um, uh, the actual engine itself, the combustion cha chamber, how the rocket nozzle, the bell shape is affected. There's so much that goes into it. And it's crazy and it's cool. And I just, I, I know like a tiny percent of it, but it's so stinking cool. To me. Um, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, so all these guys came up with the rocket equation. Um, but it, but it's also a lot of times credited just to this Russian guy, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, um, because he also kind of developed, he, he discussed two other innovations that are absolutely crucial to like getting into orbit. Um, Tsiolkovsky wrote about liquid fuels, which are, which again, I, I just kind of listed some of them. Um, liquid fuel fuels are much more efficient. They have a higher... Again, like fuel efficiency, they have a higher specific impulse than solid fuels. However, they produce less thrust. So they burn more efficiently, but not as powerfully. And so a lot of times what you'll see is, you know, when a rocket is first taking off, think back to, for instance, the space shuttle. The space shuttle had these two solid fuel rocket motors on the side when because that's when it was its heaviest. And who cares about being efficient? You're still in the atmosphere. You still have all this drag. We just need to get this thing <laughs> up out of the atmosphere into the vacuum of space. And then the more efficient engines can do their thing. Um, and so that's that's pretty standard practice. A lot of, however, there are these things called sounding rockets, which you you're not tending to like go up in orbit. You're just wanting to like go way up high, escape the atmosphere do some readings, take some pictures, and then it'll crash back down. Um, okay. And so, and so for these sounding rockets, they just use solid fuel because it's much simpler. You don't have to worry about like pressurized tanks and um, all this stuff. It's just like, okay, let's jam it full of, um, uh, yeah, our, 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 our fuel 
and then and light it and you're done um uh <laughs> liquid fuel engines have a couple of, of, of other advantages you can throttle them you can throttle them down uh so so you maybe, control your like yeah speed. yeah you, you can control your speed versus a solid rocket motor which is a roman candle like you 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 light it and then it's going to do its thing and there's no way to like there's 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 no way to throttle it down there's no way to turn it off <laughs> once you light a solid rocket it, it it a solid fuel rocket it's just going to go so silkovsky was was kind of writing early on about liquid fuels which are very important and then the other big uh innovation that he wrote about is this thing rocket staging so rocket staging is to go back to the desert analogy you have your like five uh one gallon jugs of water say you you drink one of them why do you need to carry this empty jug with you anymore there's no more water in it so drop yeah. it off and then you move to litter. the fourth one and then litter, you drink the fourth one and yeah it's it's clear it's 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 dead weight it's literal dead weight and granted sure it's like two ounces of plastic or whatever um, but it's dead weight. You don't need it anymore. And if you'll recall, right. in the in the rocket equation, the the dry mass, the weight of the vehicle without fuel, is important. So, so Tsiolkovsky was writing like, okay, maybe we do like separate stages. So like, and then that's where they're either like stacked on top of each other or they're stacked radi- radially along the side. And um, some rockets will light, and they have their like kind of uh, discrete. They're, they're, they're separately contained uh, fuel tanks. And then when they've exhausted, they will detach. They will separate from mm-hmm. the... Mm-hmm. And then, then they just fall and crash into the ocean, like you're saying. And so you don't need to haul, like, your empty fuel tank around with you. So that was another, like, huge innovation that greatly increased the amount of Delta V uh, that, that, that you could put into a rocket. And therefore, you can go faster. You can go farther. You can do stuff. You can do a lot of stuff. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's super. It's super cool. Uh, it's super super cool. So instead of having, and it's it's more efficient. Like even though like the engines themselves, like they have their own weight, and you might think, well, can I just put like one giant ass fuel tank, and then just one one rocket engine? Sometimes it's more efficient to do two separate stages and then break them apart. Staging also comes important. Comes up too. Um, because atmospheric pressure, not drag necessarily, but atmospheric pressure also can affect, um, a rocket engine's performance. Um, and so a lot of times rocket engines come in two flavors. They, they come in like atmosphere rated ones, which tend to be a little smaller and a little narrower engine bell. And then you have vacuum rated ones, which are bigger and the bell extends a little bit further out. Um, and so that's that's another thing too, is it's like, well, the first stage when the rocket is still in the atmosphere, it has this like atmosphere grade rocket engine. When that's spent and it's used up its fuel, we'll stage that off, we'll separate that off. And then we're practically in space anyway, so we'll use this vacuum rated rocket engine that uh, has a bigger bell. So it's like more more of the exhaust gets to like push against the craft it's it's it, again, man. It's literally rocket science. <laughs> literally rocket science. <laughs> literally yeah. rocket science. Um, no, I think you're doing a very admirable job, though, describing it because like you're making it make sense to me. So okay, well, I mean, 
if nobody else, if all of our listeners had lost, at, at least I got you, Mark. Um, <laughs> and I don't know shit about rockets. So. Right. So, again, go to YouTube and, and just look up, like, rocket engine test, and you'll see these. They'll be either, they'll, they'll, they'll be testing the rockets, either mounted kind of sideways, um, and you can see the exhaust, and you, you can see this principle kind of in action, where... The atmospheric pressure, yeah, there's all this hot exhaust coming out, but still the 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 pressure of the Earth's atmosphere is is is, is pressing in on it, and so when when they're doing these rocket tests, um, you'll see in the exhaust these like really cool patterns that emerge in the exhaust, um, and and they look like diamonds, and they're called mock diamonds or mock effects, and that's literally. The atmosphere pushing so hard on the rocket exhaust that the exhaust kind of like buckles back in on itself, and it makes these kind of like diamond pattern shapes. So, so again, like just like Google oh, mock shit. diamonds or mock effects, um, and that is not ideal. That's not very efficient. You don't want that to happen because what okay. you want instead is this nice like parallel stream. You always want a parallel stream, Mark. <laughs> Always parallel stream. Yeah, you, we've been saying that since day one. Really, yeah. always parallel stream. Yeah, you, you you don't want to cross the streams, and basically that's what happened. That what happens. Um, it can even get so bad if there's if the rocket uh, engine nozzle, if the bell is so poorly designed, and the atmosphere pushes too hard in on it, the exhaust will create acoustic effects, and it'll bounce around in the rocket bell, and cause it to blow up. Um, that is so fucking cool. It's so fucking cool. It's amazing. I love it. And so it's it's finding this nice balance of okay, can we get can we get the exhaust as parallel as possible even though uh, listeners go back to our mountain episodes and, ta- and and you'll hear me talk about how quickly atmospheric pressure trails off the higher you go up in altitude or elevation. So it's like okay, what's the like happy medium that we can find for our first stage engine? We'll stage that off. We'll separate that, and then when we're up in the vacuum, then we'll, then we use our vacuum engine, and that's and that's fine. And so, yeah, typically what you see in order to get into orbit around the Earth, at a minimum, you need two stages. Okay. Um, doesn't matter if you're launching, um, I don't know, like a marble. Doesn't matter if you're launching something as big as yeah, like the um, Apollo program with like a lunar lander. At a minimum, you need two stages. We just we just don't have the technology to to, to do that yet. Um, okay. Okay. There's there's some there's some really interesting, again like super um, experimental rocket engine designs going on. Uh, that will that could maybe work. Um, or there's there some of them are like. Well, when we're in the atmosphere, we can maybe treat it like a scramjet. We can, we can treat it like like a jet engine, so it so it'll take in the air instead of packing along oxidizer with our fuel. Right. It can like breathe. It can breathe the, the oxygen in, and then when we reach a certain elevation, a, a certain altitude, we flip a switch, and then the air breathing mode shuts off, and then we switch over to a more conventional liquid fuel rocket. That'd be okay. pretty. That'd be okay. pretty badass. Um, there's some other ones where they're called, um, uh, either rocket foil or rocket spikes, where instead of like a bell, 
you do the opposite. You like have just like a little pointy piece that sticks out. And then the atmospheric pressure creates a sort of bell. It's super fascinating. It's super cool. Um, there have okay. been some test fires of some of these things, these, these rocket spikes or these rocket foils. Um, but nothing just yet. And so, yes, at, at a minimum, you need two stages. But once we get to the quote-unquote single stage to orbit, the SSTO, once we crack the code of SSTO, um, that's going to be another huge game changer. Because, well, and, and that's, we're, I'm going to get to SpaceX in a little bit, but that's like SpaceX's whole thing. It's like, hey, we, for the longest time, that first stage would just crash in the ocean. And that's a whole lot of money. That's a whole lot of manufacturing. That's a lot of time that you just like waste. You just throw it, throw it away. But even just by recycling that first stage, by getting that first stage to land either back on the ground or on a barge somewhere, that, mm-hmm. that brings down the cost to, to send something to space by like 100%. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Right. Um, yeah. Be- yeah. Because you don't need to like get it back. You don't need to. Yeah. 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 So you like, you, you know, you I like, guess you are getting it back. So you don't need to remake it, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have to refurbish it. You know, you have to, you know, clean it up a bit, slap a new coat of paint on there and then off it goes. Um, but yes. And so this is the other cool thing going all the way back to the fire dragging, ri- the fire dragon rising out of the water. Multi-stage rocket. Yes. That, yes, multi-stage. That the Fire Dragon manual talked about. This same concept. The same concept. Like, okay, we're going to like shoot the rocket partway up, and then other rockets are going to shoot out of it. 800 years ago, man. 800 years ago. That's so goddamn cool. Yeah. Fucking they Chinese knew it was up. Like, Yeah, they had it. They had it. Um, But yeah. So, I just don't think they realized they had it. Like, Right. Or Well, and of course, like, because... Instead of metal casings, they would just like get bamboo, you know, because it's hollow on the inside. So that's what they would use. So yeah, like you can't you can't get to space on a bamboo rocket, or at least not yet. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> not with that attitude, Mister. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. So um, okay, so so the rocket e equation gets kind of published in five different times independently, and it sort of takes off from there. Um, listeners and Mark, you probably had this name stick out to you, Robert Goddard. Robert um, Goddard, yeah. He is not only a great... He's a great scientist or a great engineer? Great scientist? Yes. Well, when, when those, engineer. Engineer. En- okay, that's what I thought. Engineer. Um, not only did he, again, separately develop the rocket equation, he launched the first liquid fuel rocket in oh, 1926. Shit. And 1926? That's, yeah. that's crazy. 1926. And again, if you Google it, you'll, you'll see it's it, it's a little tiny sounding rocket. It's nothing super impressive, but this guy, did, he did. He he did, instead of solid, instead of just gunpowder or something like that, he, he used liquid wa- uh, liquid fuel for this rocket. Yeah, but he did. Like, that's the point. Like, yeah. he did. You mm-hmm. know, like, he he did. Yeah, uh, sorry, I'm not stupid, but like... Yeah, no, but it is. But it is. Um, he did it. He was the first one to do it. Like Right, right. Uh, and for for many people... This this launch, the first liquid fuel rocket launch, is the start of the space age. Okay. Um, just just with the changes that having having a liquid fuel rocket does. Um, not long after, uh, Sergey Korolev and Mikhail Tikhonorov uh, launched the Soviet Union's first liquid fuel rocket in 1933. 
Um, and another name that will sound familiar to you and others, uh, Werner von Braun and Walter Dornberger launched the first V-2 rocket in Germany in 1942 under maybe less than ideal circumstances, um, to, to say the least. But, you know, he still... Least. Yes, von Braun is an asshole. Yes, he's a Nazi piece of shit, but he still did it, like... Mm-hmm. He still did it. We wouldn't have an American rocket program. Well, we would, but we wouldn't have gotten it as yeah, quickly it as we did. Right. We would, you know, really, he was instrumental in the creation therein. So it's like, fuck, what do you, how do you, you know, disseminate Going the all the way back. Yeah, Josh? going all the way back. Just like you're saying, going all the way back to complicity and evil, separating the art from the artist, the rocket from the rocketeer, from the rocket scientist. Um, Is yeah. Elon Musk a Nazi? Probably not, but. <laughs> you're right, right. Um, and so, uh, after the first V-2 rocket, uh, two years later, in 1944, um, another V-2 rocket, uh, designation MW-18014, uh, launched and reached an altitude of 176 kilometers, or about 110 miles, and, thi- and this was uh, the first man-made object to reach space. You may be asking, Mark, well, what is space? How are, what, what does well, that what mean? is space, Josh? What, what is space? Well, that is a trick. That is a deceptively tricky question to answer. Uh, there's for, for doing this for almost a century now, um, there's no universal definition or like real understanding about where the atmosphere ends and where space begins. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there is, there is, however, something that's generally accepted, and it has its own caveats and all that stuff. Um, and this is something called the Karman line, and the Karman line um, is approximately a hundred kilometers or sixty-three miles above the Earth's surface. And there's reason for this. Um, the the Hungarian American uh, Theodore von Karman, uh, he helped. Again, he was he was. In, he, he was in this stuff. He was in the space age. He was, he was chatting with all these people. He helped form Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, that is still active to this day. And, and like oh, I know JPL, yeah. yeah. Yeah, JPL. Yeah. He, he helped put them together. So Theodore von Karman um, calculated, he ran the numbers, and he came up with this in 1957, key year, 1957. Um, but, well, I'll just let him explain it, and then I'll try to put my own spin on it. So he writes, quote, where space begins can actually be determined by the speed of the space vehicle and its altitude above the earth. For example, Captain Ivan Carl Kinkalo Jr. in an X-2 rocket plane flew 2,000 miles per hour, 24 miles up. At this altitude wow. and sp- at this altitude and speed, Aerodynamic lift still carries 98% of the weight of the plane, and only 2% is carried by inertia. So even 24 miles up, 98% of what is keeping this thing flying is atmospheric lift, is the wings. Hmm. Uh, Carmen continues, but at 57 miles up, this relationship is reversed because there is no longer any air to contribute lift. Only inertia prevails. This is certainly a physical... So it's just going. Yeah, right. It's just going. Like, there's maybe some drag that will slow it down eventually. But 
the speed that it is going, there's not enough atmosphere to provide lift. It's just the, the thrust from the engine. And so for Karman, this certainly is a physical boundary where aerodynamics stops and astronautics begins. And so we kind of round that up to 63 miles or the perhaps easier to remember 100 kilometers. And that is the mm -hmm. quote unquote Karman line. That is where space, it doesn't matter if you're in a plane, it doesn't matter how big your wings are. It doesn't matter how fast you're going. It's just your inertia. It's just your momentum that is carrying you. God and so damn. that is quote unquote space. It does. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it's not, it, it's not the lift from the wings. It's just the thrust from your engine. Giggity. Uh. <laughs> so it's like porno. I, I, I don't know how to describe space, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty Due much. to thrust. Giggity. Right, exactly. Um, uh, and again, because we're getting into the region of like very large numbers, here, here's just a few things yes. to kind of keep in mind. So most commercial jet planes, uh, their cruising altitude is about six to eight miles. And they go okay. like 600 miles an hour, something like that. Um, weather balloons operate about 30 miles up. When a meteor enters the atmosphere, it starts burning. And you can see it at about 50 miles up. And the... Um, aurora phenomenon, those actually appear at about the Kármán line. Those are about 60 miles, 63 miles, 100 kilometers up. Fuck. Yeah. So if you're in a commercial jet plane, if you're flying Southwest Air, you're about a tenth of the way to space. <laughs> it's... Man, I... isn't that goddamn cool? That's so goddamn cool. When you Pull think about data, it, like man, that. like, mm -hmm. yeah, you're a tenth of the way of the space. We're we're a tenth of an astronaut um, right there. Um, a few more kind of for for comparison, and we'll come back to this a little bit later too. Um, the International Space Station. Do you have a guess at about what altitude that orbits? Um. If yeah, yeah, one hundred and forty kilometers. One hundred forty. Uh, the International yeah. Space Station orbits about four hundred kilometers, or about Fuck. two. Okay. Yeah, or about <laughs> two hundred fifty miles. Up. Just a bit off. Okay. Just okay. Well, but but still, no, that's okay. Two hundred. Okay. The, yeah, the ISS miles. orbits the distance between Alamos to Denver. That's yeah. Yeah, that's about, gross. I really don't. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I really don't care for that, Josh. I really don't care for that at all. I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh. But but check this. Okay, so that's that's a, a, that's two and a half the distance from the Carmen line, right? Or no, wait, no, four. That's four times the distance. Sorry, I got my number. That's yeah. four times yeah, the yeah. distance from the Carmen line. <clears throat> and you think like that has to be space, right? There is still enough atmosphere. It, it's it's super tenuous. There's so there's still enough atmosphere that high up that the ISS loses about a mile of altitude each month. Really? Yeah. There's still enough atmosphere, even above the Kármán line, that it will drop... In one year, it'll drop 12 miles. And so, about once a month, um, the ISS will reboost its orbit either from its two onboard main engines, or if a spacecraft is, is docked, that, that can help too. Um, okay. So yeah, like it's constantly reboosting its at its orbit 
just because even at that altitude, even that high up, there's still enough atmosphere, there's still enough air particles bouncing around that it's that it's that the drag is causing it to decay. Goddamn crazy. That is insane. <laughs> that so, is insane. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and I'm I'm not straying from rockets, but again, just another couple little couple little points of comparison here. Um, Mark, you may have heard of this region called low Earth orbit, which is where the vast majority of commercial satellites and things like that are. Um, low Earth orbit is again anything from the Kármán line to about twelve thousand kilometers or one hundred and twenty-five. Or excuse me, 1,250 miles. Um, just, again, some points of comparison. Uh, Sputnik, which was launched in October 1957. Uh, I mentioned that mm-hmm. year before. Sputnik orbited at about 135 miles, um, which is uh, uh, like half. That's like, right, half the distance of the International Space Station. Yeah. Um, and Sputnik was this essentially metal basketball. Um, and it was, it, it orbited for three months before it eventually decayed and burnt up in the atmosphere. Um, went around the earth like 1500 times or something like that. Um, so that's where Sputnik was. Um, Starlink, if you've heard of the Starlink satellites and all the hullabaloo about that, um, those again, SpaceX, Elon Musk, um, those orbit at about 340 miles and the, okay. And the Hubble telescope uh, was around 370 miles. Jesus. So those are still within what we call low Earth orbit. Um, Medium Earth orbit is... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was laughing at it. The low Earth orbit is 370 miles. That's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, uh, Medium Earth orbit is about uh, 1,250 to... 22,236 miles. Gee, Josh, that's a really specific number. I wonder why that is. Well, dear listeners, we'll get to that soon. Um, GPS satellites are in medium Earth orbit at about um, 12,600 miles. Um, And they are in a semi-synchronous orbit, meaning that they orbit uh, the planet Earth two times each day. So they're... Wow. yeah, their um, uh, their their orbital period, as it's called, the the time it takes for them to complete one orbit is twelve hours. So so they go around the Earth two times in one day. Um, all oh, how many GPS satellites are there? there's like forty of them, something like that. Um, okay, but yeah, so 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 they're all in a big cluster around over there. Um, and yeah, why this strange number for the end of medium Earth orbit twenty two thousand uh, two hundred thirty six miles. That is this very special uh, type of orbit that is a geosynchronous orbit. Or and in some cases, in some places even, it's a geostationary orbit. And that's where the orbital period is 24 hours. So it orbits, the satellite orbits once per day with the Earth, and it appears stationary. It appears like it's just kind of hanging in, in the sky. You don't see it moving east or west or anything like that. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, medium Earth orbit is, and again, there's no real reason why it starts at 1,250, but it ends at like the limit of geosynchronous orbit. Um, 
as you might imagine, lots of like telescopes hang out there, like Earth-facing telescopes hang out in geosynchronous orbit. A lot of communication satellites, stuff like that. Because um, mm-hmm. yeah, because you're just parked over this one part of the Earth um, all the time. God. Damn. Um, and then beyond that, getting into high Earth orbit or beyond geosynchronous orbit, um, there's really not a lot of stuff here. It's it's kind of the worst of both world, worlds. Um, it just takes. Okay, hold on. Sorry. Speaking about orbiting. Yeah. Have a little, yeah, here we go. Got a little Quincy class rocket that is ready for takeoff. Uh, yeah, there you go, buddy. Um, okay, so yeah, high it earth orbit, be two wizards. Yeah, it wouldn't be, it would not be two wizards. Um, high earth orbit is, yeah, you, you really don't see it used a whole lot. Um, I mean, it takes more delta V, it's just harder to reach. This is where you start to actually get like communication delays, uh, because even traveling at light speed, um, you get like up to a second delay um, for, for the satellites. Um, and you're outside of the Earth's uh, magnetic sphere, so you're dealing with higher amounts of radiation. So yeah, there's really not a whole lot of reason to hang out here in high Earth orbit. It's just kind of dumb. Uh, <laughs> um, at least one not- notable satellite is the Transiting Exoplanet Surveying Satellite, TESS. Um, and this is in a very elliptical, this is in a very kind of squished oval shape uh, orbit that goes between uh, 67,000 and 232,500 miles. Um, Jesus. And it uses that distance. It, it gets really, it gets comparatively close to Earth and then it zooms all the way out so that it can search. Oh, so for... like slingshots. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's a, instead of a nice uh, circular orbit. This is like a really long kind of stretched out oval, smushed kind of oval one. Um, yeah, right on. So, so yeah, and so that uh, that's what that does. Um, okay, so I, I mentioned this thing, this this, this this delta V. Here's here's one way to think about it. And again, maybe this is kind of mind blowing, maybe not. You can almost you can kind of think of this as like gallons of gas, kind of. Maybe that makes sense. I don't know. Um, in order to reach space to pass the Karman line, you need approximately um, 1.5 kilometers per second of delta V. So you need to move something, you you need to go from zero to 1.5 kilometers per second in order to reach space. Okay, cool. Pretty easy, right? Pretty easy. And and again, right, you can, so like a sounding rocket that's like six feet tall, maybe a foot in diameter with solid rocket fuel that can reach space. Um, pretty. And, and like take a digital camera up there, like, like, like pretty easy. And then, and then it'll float back down. Um, <laughs> to get into orbit, however, you need approximately 9.5 kilometers per second. So that's what, almost six times, six or seven times. Yeah. So it's six or seven. It takes six or seven times more delta V to enter low Earth orbit. Um, and so okay. that's why okay. you see giant rockets to to do that. And of course, it depends on the payload. It depends on you know how heavy the thing you're taking up is. But yeah, so it's so it's a lot more difficult. Okay, hey, great, you're already in low Earth orbit. Hard part done. Just getting out of the atmosphere into low Earth orbit is truly one of the hardest parts about a rocket launch. 
Um, to go from low Earth orbit to geostationary orbit takes another four kilometers per second of delta V. Okay. If you're in low Earth orbit, this blows my mind. If you're in low Earth orbit to land on the moon, you need only another 5.7 kilometers per second. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so if you are in geostationary orbit, you're two-thirds of the way to landing on the moon. Why are we landing on the moon more? It sounds like it'd be pretty easy just to... <laughs> it's like going to Pueblo to get Chipotle. Like, yeah, it's yeah. kind of a pain in the ass, but you just do it. Like, it's Chipotle. It's delicious. Like, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. The moon I mean, is right. If the moon is right there, guys. There's the moon is fucking right aliens there. that are dead inside of it. Go yeah. Go check it out. It's Come inside on. that hollow moon. Um, and again, for another... Comp- again, this just gets crazy. This just gets... Cr- and, and this is why... I really had to not go down this rabbit hole and like just focus on rockets because like, yeah, like space travels. Okay, so we said to go from low Earth orbit to the moon is about, well, we'll round up six kilometers per second. To go from low Earth orbit to land on Mars, it's only, only 9.5 kilometers per second. So if you can go to the moon, if you can go to the moon, you're two thirds of the way to going to Mars. So it's like to land. What do you call like Mars. diminishing returns that are kind of easier? Like it is, and, and and that's where and that's where the delta velocity is. Like you're already going super fast. You're already going so fast, and it is, and it's 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 a it's yeah, it's like increasing returns. In fact, there's a term for that. I mentioned this guy, uh, uh, Hermann Oberth, the the German guy who yes. came up. There's he discovered this other thing called the Oberth effect. Where it's how to like, it's another way to maximize your fuel. Where the faster you are moving, you get better performance out of your rocket fuel. Hmm. It's crazy. So like, so... Josh, what is going on? What is... It is. Again, man. Or like, Uh. orbital mechanics is crazy. It's mind-blowing. And the best way to figure this out is, again, to play Kerbal Space Program. Um, but okay, all right. So fine, I will re-download it. Okay, no, that's, that's fine. Okay. No more that's Hogwarts okay. Legacy. I get no, it. No, all right, do, fine. Do that too. But also, you, Mark, and you, listeners, go play Kerbal Space Program. I, I'd hold <laughs> off on the sequel. They're, they're still. It's in. It's kind of released. It's kind of still in early development. Whatever, whatever. Um, but okay. Um, I just want to the as we're nearing the end of our time here. I want to get away from orbital mechanics. I want to get away from like interplanetary travel. And Mm -hmm. I I want to talk you through what it would be like to actually ride a rocket into low Earth orbit. Um, So because we've talked about before, you and I, we we, we are going to be space tourists at some point. Whenever it gets cheap enough, whenever, you know, instead of retiring and uh, spending the, the winter in Florida or in the Caribbean, we're going to spend the winter on the moon. That's what we're going to do when we retire. Hell yeah. Um, Hell so, yeah. So, so here's, here's th- there are many different types of trajectories and flight paths and all these other things, but I'm taking these numbers um, from a recent rocket launch uh, on, of, on a Falcon 9. Uh, this was the Crew 6 mission that occurred on March 2nd uh, of this year, so just a couple months ago. Um, and this is a uh, Falcon 9 rocket that went up to the International Space Station. So, 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 here's, so here's our itinerary. Here's, a, here's a, um, a countdown and itinerary of what it's like to fly 
on a rocket and get into low Earth orbit. So we're counting down um, T minus 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. At T minus 0, we have ignition and liftoff. 30 seconds at T plus 30 seconds, we are traveling. Um, okay, maybe just to simplify this, I'll just keep to Imperial units. Sorry, metric yeah, nerds. Yeah, do that for me. Yeah. I, I need that. Yeah, so, sorry, metric nerds. Just get good. At T plus 30 seconds, we are already traveling 310 miles an hour. And we oh my are, God. Okay. And we, and we are about one and a quarter mile altitude. 30 seconds. Um, at T plus, uh, 45 seconds, these, uh, nine Merlin 1D engines, rocket engines, they throttle down because they're, uh, liquid fuel rocket engines. So at T plus 45 seconds, they throttle down because we are approaching at T plus one minute, this thing called max Q which is where we are encountering the strongest aerodynamic pressure on the rocket ship. Um, and so we're going, we, we actually need to like slow down a little bit so we don't stress the vehicle and, and until we get okay. to okay. thinner parts of the atmosphere. Um, when we reach max Q, we're traveling at about 620 miles per hour and we're about five miles altitude. And we are just about to break uh, the sound barrier and reach supersonic speed in excess of 767 miles per hour. So, Jesus. so about one minute we're, we're uh, supersonic, just about. Okay. Um, 15 seconds later at T plus one minute, 15 seconds, we've made it through max Q. It's comparatively smooth sailing, kind of. Um, at T plus two minutes, we are traveling 2,350 miles per hour at an altitude of 25 miles. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Okay. Just before we reach T plus two minutes, 35 seconds, uh, the main engines, those nine Merlin 1D engines, uh, cut off because they have used up their fuel and the first stage is spent. Um, mm-hmm. They still have some fuel because that first stage, as uh, SpaceX does, it's going to re-land. But for our, for our journey, it's done. Uh, before, this, before this main engine cutoff, or as it's called, MECO, uh, we experience a maximum acceleration of 3.3 Gs. Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, cool. So we're slammed. Not yourself just a little bit. Yeah, just, yeah. okay, cool. So we're getting slammed at... 3.3 Gs, and then it suddenly stops. Um, when this happens, at Miko, we are traveling 4,340 miles per hour, and we are just shy of the Kármán line at 50 miles altitude. Okay. And so there it is again, right? That first stage is, is optimized for atmospheric flight. We're just about out of the atmosphere as it burns out, and then it detaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a few seconds later, after a successful separation of the first stage, uh, the single, there's only one of these now, because we, we, we've already fought a lot of gravity. We only need one. The single Merlin D1 vacuum engine ignites. And so this is, this is optimized for vacuum flight. Um, uh, at T plus three minutes, uh, we, we, we have lost a little bit of speed, and we're down to 4,280 miles per hour. 
but we have crossed the Carmen line. We are in space. Um, and things really are smooth sailing from now. Um, the second stage does not burn, does not uh, accelerate us at three Gs of force. It's a lot gentler. <laughs> um, and it's going to continue to burn for about six minutes. And we have a okay. uh, second engine cutoff. We have Seco at nine at T plus nine uh, at T plus nine minutes when we have reached that magical velocity of sixteen thousand seven hundred fifty miles per hour. That's the velocity you need to reach to get uh, into low Earth orbit, and we are cruising at a chill one hundred twenty three miles above the surface of the Earth. So it wow. takes okay. it takes nine minutes to get into orbit. That is, that is nuts. Isn't that so stinking cool? Because like, and, and I don't know like, so that's the other thing. So not only are is SpaceX like pioneering uh, reusable rockets, recovering the first stage, they're doing things like recovering other bits and parts here. I think one of the big game changers too is they started live streaming. Um, yeah. Not not all of their yeah. launches, but the vast majority of their launches. And I distinctly remember when they were attempt when they were first trying to reland the first stages, I would stop um, Honors English Ten as they were writing their poems or whatever. Be like, okay, guys, hey, I'm gonna put put YouTube on to see if they can land this goddamn rocket. <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah, I remember yeah. you like, hey, yeah. um, just do whatever you're doing, but also we're just gonna watch this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are cool times. Yeah, it's super cool. Well, and and not only were they live streaming them, but they have. Little like, um, yeah, they have little readouts about what's happening and how fast it's going and its altitude. And it makes it so much, because like it demystifies it. It gets so many people fired up. Um, yeah. And then, right. So, so yeah. So, so we, um, you and I, we, we passengers, we are uh, in low Earth orbit. But that first stage, uh, at about nine minutes, this thing has already flipped around. So now it's, now it's going ass first back into the atmosphere. It's... Um, made a deceleration burn it's falling back into earth and then it's going to make a landing burn um and settle on a barge out in the atlantic ocean somewhere jesus yeah i do like those when they like re-enter and like just so gently touch back down that's that's a really cool moment yeah i was again as i was finishing my notes here i think they've made 187 attempts and they've successfully completed like 178 so they've only lost like five that's amazing it's it's, it's incredible and and i might don't don't quote those exact numbers on me but it's 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 only like yeah it's like two percent have failed or something like that and 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 yeah and so uh a few years back this uh when they were doing the falcon heavy where they put essentially like three uh, first stages together because that can get th- going things going even farther. All of those landed again successfully on some of those test flights. They had um, Starship. They had that test flight a couple weeks ago that again, it cleared. It, it took off. It took off and it was trying to do... I, think, I haven't heard the details, but it was... That, that problem happened during or just before stage separation. So when they were trying to take the first stage off, Something happened. It started flipping right. around. It was completely out of control. And um, they made the decision. They, they have an entire system. They have a flight termination system where it's like, yeah, this thing is tits up. 
blow it up and they push a button and it blows up so that it doesn't that's amazing too that's super super cool cool. yeah fuck it hit it so 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 yes that was very briefly rockets in space rockets and how we started off um with these fire arrows how this ottoman scientist ligari i think he had the first manned space flight i believe that he flew up talked to jesus then swam back to the sultan and said hey he says hi <laughs> that's what i that's what I think jesus happened. says what's up yeah and then um 350 years 350 years after ligari's flight yeah we landed on the moon and, and yeah like and, and i didn't even get into like and this is maybe again this is maybe stuff for like future episodes because i was i was primarily focusing on rockets i wasn't necessarily talking about like like human space flight i didn't go into like yuri garrigan i didn't get into neil armstrong and buzz aldrin and uh 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 uh, john john glenn here in columbus we have john glenn international airport um yeah didn't talk about chuck yeager being the first person to break the sound barrier in in a rocket plane so there's so much more there's so much more that we could follow up in other episodes. If that's something you're interested in, Mark, if that's something you're interested in, uh, listeners. So rockets, they're goddamn cool. Yeah, rockets. How do they work? Um, rockets, I think we know, but we don't really know. Listeners, do you know? Or are you a rocket scientist? And you're just sitting oh, here like, oh, my God, Josh, the Carmen line is not even a big deal. Calm down. And, hey, was that you? Well, you should let us know, I think. Right, Josh? I would absolutely lose my mind if I got an email or if we got a DM on Twitter from somebody who works at JPL or somebody who works at NASA or somebody who works at, like, SpaceX. I don't know. Or anybody. Even even Blue Origin. Even silly Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos in his pissing contest here. Like, like even if you're over there, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Have you played Kerbal Space Are you that weird Indian firm that is going to get to Mars in, like, what, a year, right? Like, they're going to, they're, like, almost there, right? So, so yeah, between, okay, so, like. India is going to win the goddamn science victory, I'm pretty sure, because, like, America stopped doing it. mm -hmm. China kind of forgot that they were doing it, and India's like, right? Or am I I crazy there? Is is India not crushing it? I mean, that's the other kind of big thing. Because, of course, during the space race, it was the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But, like, and then so many other, right? There's there's the European Space Agency. Um, there's JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. There's there, there's this China Space Program. There's India's. Um, uh, even, uh, 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 even, like... Um, oh, God, there, there's, there's one more kind of big one. And now I'm feeling silly. That I'm, I don't know. Some it's probably gonna be like some New Zealander who's like pissed off. Like, I mean, Ethiopia was gonna send one out so that they could go convert people to Christianity. So yeah, (laughs) right. They got off the ground, didn't he? Didn't they? Didn't the Ethiopian rocket program like almost break Carmen line or something weird? Maybe something like that. Misimagining that. I I'm I'm not sure, but but that's that's the other cool thing too. Is like while there is a, a lot of cooperation. There's also like yeah some very new and cool, like like lower temperature space races going on, or or maybe as Hita like who's going to be the first uh, to send a human being to Mars, uh, who's going to be the first to set up a moon colony, uh, th- th- yeah. So I'm I'm excited. I'm excited for these next couple of years of, of uh, all things spacey, and it's all thanks to these rockets, these incredible rockets that we continue to make um, advancements on. 
And maybe one day, oh, maybe yeah. maybe we'll see a single stage to take off vehicle, because um, that would be super. That'd be super cool. That would that would again drop the price of what it would mean to put things into orbit by another like order of magnitude or hundred. <laughs> but but anyway, okay. I'm getting horned up for rockets. We should probably bring this episode to a close. Um, so yes. listeners, yes, please, please, we'd love to hear from you. Um, have, have have you seen any of these uh, uh, launches? Have you been down to Cape Canaveral? Have you uh, been down to the SpaceX um, uh, launch center there in uh, Boca Chica? I think that's what it is, Boca Chica. Are you are you there in California at uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base where SpaceX also does some launches? Um, we want to know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your stories. Um, so please send them our way. Send us an email to twowizardspodcast at gmail.com. Um, find us on Twitter at twowizardspodc1. Uh, we're active on Facebook. We're active on Instagram. I am active on Twitter at plaidbarbarian. Stop by for uh, Two Wizards Podcast news. Stay because I put cat pictures up. You are getting... Not egregious. What do you call it when it's like egregiously precious? The one of mm-hmm. um, Monroe sleeping really just kind of destroyed it was, me. Like I was, it was hilarious. I was, she was, I was rocked like a hurricane. I was just like, oh my god, that's like, oh god, the little, the the ears. Oh, yeah, I the cannot. little ear, ear twitches. She's just yeah, head buried <sighs> oh, into yeah. the electric blanket. Um, yes, I've I've cooled off. I've cooled off from my feistier Twitter days, and I just do I just do cat pictures mostly now, and maybe little like classics jokes, but. Um, uh, but but so, so Mark, there's also a there's an entire fleet. We have an entire yes starship fleet of uh, uh, podcasts here under uh, High Hammock Studios. So what sort of things are, are are going on there? Yeah, um, so we're doing this new thing now where we're cutting in ad bumpers. So you probably already heard me, well, or Johnny, I'm not sure. Somebody talking about the other projects at about 50 minute mark or about 50 minutes ago you heard that listeners but this is your chance and you heard that little bumper and now you're hearing me going um go check out the uh dangle podcast a weekly retrospective rewatch of king of the hill uh with me and my buddy johnny um we're into season nine things are getting harder to put up with because lucky is here josh that's Uh a that's a real maximum aerodynamic pressure uh (laughs) event right there the the entrance of lucky Ugh, <laughs> oh, oh, that's a Bernoulli wave that just destroys your <laughs> flight. Um, but you can also find me uh, uh, and our other sister, other sister podcast, the uh, I Can't Wait to Show My Kids podcast. Me and my buddy Brad are talking about movies that we love, but the other one hasn't seen. And we are addressing that ever important question of when can I show this to my kids? This week we did Hunt for the Wilder People and... um. Just spoilers, I was entranced. I don't know if you've seen that one, Josh. Like I haven't, but I think I... Didn't you have a tweet about that? Yeah, I was... Yeah. No, it's amazing. I Go watch it. I okay. might... Okay, sweet. I might... I need to... I'm going to watch it again at some point. It was so good. Guys, go watch that, and then go listen to me and Brad talk about it. And um, there's that. And yeah, let us know anything else. There's more things coming. There's... High hammock grows. We, Josh, are about to hit that like Carmen line of podcasting. I reckon. Yeah, I but think you're we right. can't quite do it without you guys. So please do that five star review. Do that like and subscribe. Do that whole like, you know, this two wizards podcast is. I would say like you know out of 140 episodes, like I don't know, 80 are pretty solid, and I will, I will fucking yeah, take I it. Will, I yeah, will absolutely take, take 80. Yeah. And yes, 
<laughs> we all remember Thanksgiving. I'm sorry about Thanksgiving. We can move on now, though, to greater and better on our rocket ship. I'm going to find that song and cut it in because it's been no, in my head for the last great. two hours. Yeah. No, anyway, absolutely. anyway, that all that is to say, uh, thank you for being here tonight. Josh, you, I don't want to say you were out of this world, but I'm just oh, going to say it. You're out of this world, buddy. Uh, this was amazing. Uh, thank you. Yeah, no, yeah, it was it was truly my pleasure uh, that I got to geek out about this thing, and and, and yeah, and so also uh, uh, in, in in addition to those other things, tell us if you want more space stuff. Do you do you want to hear more about yeah, like some of the early uh, space labs? Because there's a bunch of fun stories with that. Um, if you want to talk more about like, okay, Josh, you you uh, you got me all riled up for this orbital mechanics. Um, uh, talk to me about a. Uh, uh, Holman tra- transfer orbits, uh, and baby, I will. <laughs> um, Mark, what's the Pinamundo camp? Oh, I'm, I'm glad you asked, little wizard acolyte. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's been uh, an absolute pleasure and an honor, uh, Mark. Always great to talk with you. Always great to hear your voice. Um, and listeners, always great to have you join us here. Uh, so, thank you very much. And like Mark said, uh, like, share, tell a friend, word of mouth. Um, tell your coworkers what whatever it is. We we'd love we we'd love to bring more people into the uh, auspices of the Wizard's Tower. Uh, but my name is Josh, and I'm a wizard. And my name is Mark, and I am a wizard. Um, we love you all, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. Take care. Good night. He rolled upon his back, and after that, I killed them all.